Weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. And now here's your ghost host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Welcome, weirdos. Thank you for joining me. In the early days when organized crime was just getting organized, the most notorious gangsters were making their mark, and some had their sights set on Florida. We've all heard of the Gambino, Genovese, Bonanno, Colombo, and Lucchese families, but have you heard about Ma Barker or the Ashley Gang? They also did their share of dirty deeds, like bank robberies, kidnapping, high-speed chases, and epic gun battles. These dubious characters of the underworld let it be known who they were, and now it seems, even in the afterlife, they have something to say. To take a deep dive into history, we met up with Christy Sumner, a Florida native from Ocala. She, along with her twin sister, is part of the all-female paranormal investigative team, Soul Sisters. They are driven by a deep curiosity of unexplained phenomena, and their investigations are guided by science, as each member holds advanced educational degrees. I asked Christy how she became interested in paranormal activity. When my sisters and I were growing up, you know, we'd watch shows on, on television, ghost hunters, other paranormal shows, and we'd say to ourselves, you know, why didn't they spend more time in this room, or why didn't they ask these questions, or why didn't they use this technique? So we told ourselves if we ever had the opportunity to uh, go on a paranormal investigation that we would absolutely jump on that chance. So throughout the years, we because we all live in different parts of the country, we would have girls trips. So we'd meet up on the weekends. And one weekend we were going to meet up in Moundsville, West Virginia. And it just so happens that we have a family friend that sits on the board of the West Virginia State Penitentiary. And he said, well, while y'all are up here, why don't you spend the night in the West Virginia State Penitentiary? And uh, because it's one of the most haunted locations in the United States. So we absolutely jumped at that chance. So it was a very of rudimentary course. investigation, <laughs> a very rudimentary investigation. But what we found that night was so compelling to us that we really wanted to delve further into paranormal research. And uh, we formed Soul Sisters Paranormal. And we've been doing this since 2013 now. Tell me more about your team. Who's on your team? Well, it's made up of myself, my twin sister, our younger sister, and two family friends. It really is driven by myself and my twin sister. And uh, our, our, like I said, our younger sister kind of joined in, and then she brought her friend Kara. And then uh, our friend Kim expressed interest, so we, we added her to the team in 2014. And we do, like you said before, all have advanced degrees. My twin and I have a PhD in public affairs with an emphasis on criminal justice. Kara and Michelle hold JDs, and, and Kim holds a master's degree. So we all are professional in our respected fields. So this to us is, is more a labor of love than a, a job per se. Everything that we do is self-funded. And, uh, but it, it, that, that sense of exploration that we have, not only for the paranormal, but also for historical locations and the preservation of historical locations, it, what, that's what really drives us to go and investigate these places. Because, you know, not many people can say they've stayed the night in the Lizzie Borden house or no. the Willis Gax murder <laughs> house, but we can say we've done that and, and we can say we've done it as a group of sisters and friends. So it, it really is that camaraderie and that, that, you know, need to get the historical perspective out and then we bring in the the paranormal perspective after that. Now, it's no secret, you know, twins can have a deep, like, telepathic connection where you can sense the same feelings. Has that ever happened to you on an investigation? 
Yes, ma'am. You know, my sister and I, we can we can really kind of look at each other and really know what each other's thinking. I mean, she's my best friend. And, you know, we, we actually talk two or three times a day on just a normal day. But to go into these locations and we can, you know, really kind of sense what each other each other's going through or kind of feelings that we have. Our investigation style is very similar. But out, even outside of paranormal investigations, we're extremely close. For example, when we were in high school, I was coming home from a social function and, and Jenny was at home. And this was later in the evening, like, like 11 30 at night and uh my sister she just got up and started getting dressed and my mom's like what's going on and she goes i think christy's going to be in an accident tonight and oh i was God. i was i was in a fender bender and you know this was before the age of cell phones so you know i had to i had tracked down a, a pay phone and uh call my my parents after you know and my she's my mom said your sister's already on the way because she knows the route i would travel so she arrived a couple minutes afterwards so those are the kind of things that we've experienced throughout our lives and to be able to do that on investigations is is really a, a unique experience now growing up you know because you're from ocala growing up you were always interested in the ma barker house in oklahoma florida now this is where ma barker and her son fred were hiding out from authorities and would die after a four-hour shootout with the fbi on january 16th 1935 how old were you when you were first introduced to this infamous site and what were you told about it we were probably around seven or eight. Uh, my Nana and granddaddy lived about three miles from the location. Uh, they lived on Little Lake Weir, and this is this happened on Big Lake Weir. And so we would go into Oklahoma with Nana to get the mail. And every time we'd go to the post office, you know, we'd pass by it, and Nana would always say, "That's where the the shootout happened. That's where the the Barker gang was taken down by the FBI." So we always knew, like I said, from about the age of seven or eight, that something had happened there. And then for years, Marion County actually had reenactments of the shootout at the house. And so we, we attended a few of those throughout our lifetime also. And so it was just a fascinating thing for us because, you know, here's this little sleepy town of Ocklawaha, Florida. And, and for several weeks in 1935, it had the national spotlight on it. And I always said to myself, you know, as I got older, man, if I could get into the Mom Barker house at some point, I would love to just, just to get in there to see it for his the historical perspective. But as I became a paranormal investigator, I was like, I would love to get in there and investigate to see if Ma and Fred are still in that house in some capacity. And uh, we were very fortunate that Marion County allowed us the opportunity to do that um, in January of, of 2019. Maybe we should go into a little bit of the history of Ma Barker for maybe some younger listeners that mm -hmm. may not know exactly the whole story. Can you give us a little, now, of course, the Ma Barker was not from Florida, but she was hiding out in Florida with her son, which honestly, it's like, why not hide out in Florida? That's where everybody comes to hide out. So that's that I can see totally. But give me a little bit of background on on Ma Barker. Ma was her nickname. She was born um, as Arizona Donnie Kate Clark in Missouri in 1873. And she had four sons with her husband. And uh, the, the son's names were Herman Lloyd Arthur, who went by Doc, and then the youngest was Fred Barker. And so the Barker boys, they were rough throughout their entire upbringing. You know, they, they really um, got into a life of crime at a very early age, and Ma supported that because she saw that she would reap the benefits of that. So she really, you know, embraced and supported their criminal behavior. It started out as things, you know, petty theft, and, and then it really escalated into bank robbery. So the Barker boys, along with several other bank robbers and uh, a guy by the name of Alvin Carpus, 
uh, formed the Barker Carpus Gang. And what they did is they would crisscross the Midwest during the, the late 1920s and the early 1930s, and they would commit bank robberies. And at the same time, it escalated into murder. So for example, in 1931, they, sh uh, they shot and killed a guy by the name of Sheriff Kelly in Missouri. And you really have to look at the, the gang also in the social and political aspect of what was going on in the 1920s and the 1930s. So in, in 1920, you've got the start of Prohibition, which lasted until 1933. And then you've also got the Great Depression from 1929 to, 19, to the mid-1930s. So those two social and political economic events really catapulted criminal activity in oh, the yeah. United States. And that led to organized criminals such as Al Capone. And what mm -hmm. they did is they actually formed collaborations with local law enforcement. Essentially, you know, we're going to commit these crimes, but if you turn a blind eye to what we're doing, then we're going to give you some kickback. So there was a lot of the under, under the table dealings going on between organized crime and the law enforcement. And a lot of people got rich on this criminal activity during prohibition. Oh, oh absolutely. Absolutely. So you've got that organized crime factor, but then at the same time, you've got bank robbers and gangsters who are taking advantage of the, um, the collaboration between organized criminals and law enforcement. So the local jurisdictions at that time were not really doing anything to curb bank robberies um, and, and organized crime. That's why the, the Barker Carpus gang was so um, prolific in going throughout these Midwest uh, towns because they would cross jurisdictions and there would really no, there, there'd be no real heat from the law, if you will. So mm -hmm. in 1920, J. Edgar Hoover was elevated to the head of the Bureau of Investigations, which was the precursor of the FBI. So what right. J. Edgar Hoover did is he standardized federal law enforcement practices, you know, trainings, uh, fingerprint, uh, evidence collection, and he also organized what he called the flying squads. And these were elite FBI agents who were trained in, in handguns and, and, and uh, surveillance tactics who would go and really scope out these roving bank robbers and some of these organized criminals as well. So you've, like I said, you've got the, the, the Barker Carpus gang running rampant around the Midwest. And yes, they were very prolific, um, but they really didn't have the spotlight yet until 1933. So in 1933, they decided to forego bank robbery and move into kidnapping. So they kidnapped a guy by the name of William Ham Jr., who was a local brewer, and uh, they kidnapped him in Missouri, and they got a $100,000 ransom for the return of, of Ham. And wow, that's so, a lot of money back then. <laughs> absolutely, it was. So that really bolstered their kidnapping activities. So in 1934, they ended up kidnapping a guy by the name of Edward Bremer. And they asked $200,000 ransom for Bremer. They got the ransom and they released Bremer, but they really didn't know that Edward Bremer's father was great friends with President Roosevelt. So Roosevelt directed J. Edgar Hoover to go after the Barker Carpus gang and go after them hard. After they released Bremer, they took the $200,000 and, and the gang split up. And so you have gang, uh, some gang members going to Cuba, some gang members going to Chicago, and Ma and Fred decided to come down to Florida, to Central Florida. And they ended up renting a house that was owned by Carson Bradford. Now, Carson Bradford built this house in 1930, and it was a vacation home for his family. He lived in Miami. He was uh, made his fortune in the amusement park industry. The Barkers, Fred and Ma, approached him and said, you know, can we rent this house? And initially he said no. Um, but other rentals in the area were going for about 7 to $15 a month, and they offered $100 a month. And so at that point, he said, yeah, sure. Okay, so I'll take that. So they rented the <laughs> yeah, house. Yeah, that's not shady. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So they rented the house in November of 1934. And uh, so it was just the 
two of them in the house, but other gang members would come occasionally and spend a day or two. And the thought is that they were using that as a stopping point from going from their uh, from other places in the U.S. down to Cuba. On January 8th of 1935, J. Edgar Hoover and his team tracked Doc Barker to his hideout in Chicago. And so they were going through the paperwork that they found in his hideout, and they found a letter that was written by Ma to Doc, and it said, you know, we're having a great time down here in Florida, and your brother is hunting an alligator named Big Joe. And so the FBI took that information, and they came down to Central Florida, and they, they asked alligator trappers, where is there a lake in Central Florida that has an alligator named Big Joe? There was actually two of them, one in Gainesville and one in Ocala, in Oklahoma. So the one in Gainesville had already been killed. So they, they narrowed their focus to Lake Weir, again in Oklahoma. The flying squad made their way down here to Oklahoma, and they did surveillance and they ascertained that, that Ma and Fred were renting this house. So on the early morning, about 5.30 in the morning, on January 16th, 1935, the gang of FBI members, there's about a dozen FBI flying squad uh, agents, surrounded the house and they yelled for Ma and Fred to come out and uh, they were met with gunfire. And then so what ensued after that was the longest gun battle in FBI history, and it culminated in the death of Ma and Fred Barker. And so that is really kind of what happened that, that led to pretty much the, the decimation of the Barker Karpus gang. J. Edgar Hoover in 1936 actually was able to capture Alvin Karpus alive in New Orleans, and he spent uh, 27 years in Alcatraz for his role in the gang. But that day in 1935, on January 16, 1935, was when Ma and Fred Barker were killed. Before we go into your investigation and your findings, can you tell me the layout of this house? Because I know this is relevant to why you focus your investigation in certain areas of the home, which is, mm -hmm. you know, relevant to the shootout. So you can mm -hmm. just 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 give us a visual layout. So the the main door, which I would consider the front door, you walk up into, the, uh, there's four concrete steps and you walk up and the first thing you notice is this large screen porch that runs the length of the house. You walk into the, the front door and that is the living room and there's large windows so a lot of sunlight can come in. It's all hardwood floors. If you go to the right, there's the dining room and then from the dining room, you can access the kitchen. And then if you come around again through the kitchen, that allows you to come back into the living room. The entire house is, I think, about 2,100 square feet, so very spacious. And wow. then there's a, uh, a wooden staircase. So um, you go up the staircase, and upstairs there are four large bedrooms, again, all with windows, which are beautiful. Um, and then there's also a bathroom upstairs. So it's actually a four-bedroom, two-bath house. And so during that day, what Ma and Fred were doing is before the FBI really started shooting, they went and they closed all the blinds in the house. So the FBI could not get a count of actually how many gang members were in the house at the time. And then they would run around during the shootout and shoot from various windows of the house, again, to kind of disguise how many people were in the house. And the interesting thing in kind of pulling together the history a little bit further, after the shootout, the the Carson Bradford and his family kind of had the presence of mind to save um, a lot of the memorabilia that would be involved with the shootout. So when you walk into the house today, there's still bullet holes in the wall. There's still furniture, original furniture that have bullet holes going through them, um, rocking chairs, you know, um, dressers, some pictures, and, and they're all there. The sconces are all original, the doors, the everything is original to the house. And so when you do walk into it now, you do get that sense of two things. One, stepping back into 
Florida 1935, and also stepping back into the day on January 16th, 1935, because you can see the remnants of what happened. So you can actually put your finger on a bullet hole in a wall upstairs and, you know, know that that was made, you know, 85 years ago, which is kind of cool. In, 19, in uh, 2016, the family decided that they were going to sell the land, but the house was not going to convey with the land. So Marion County, Florida actually took over control of the house and um, they floated it across Lake Weir. They put it on a barge and they moved it to a new location in the Carney Island Recreation Center, uh, Carney Island Recreation Park. Let's go into some of the reports of hauntings. What previous reports of hauntings from this location were you aware of or from this home? So the initial reports that we found were the the Carson Bradford and his family actually said that they believed there was spirits at the house. They would hear footsteps. They would hear glasses clinking. Uh, they would hear what sounded like furniture moving upstairs when they would visit the house because again they maintained it as a vacation home. So when they would visit it, you know they would they would experience some of these things. Um, and then when they weren't in the house, you know when they were you know back down in Miami, neighbors would hear have reports of uh, you know they would be looking at the windows and they would see a shadow figure walk by. Um, there's one report of a guy who was approaching the house and uh, a figure came to the back door and told him to get off the land and there was nobody in the house at the time. Those reports, a lot of noises, a lot of bangs and footsteps, as well as that one report of the apparition have all occurred since the shootout in 1935. So a lot of people, you know, the residents of Ocklawaha, um, as well as some of, of Marion County, really did consider it haunted to some degree. Okay, now tell me what your strategy was behind this investigation. So my strategy was um, I wanted to investigate the house on the anniversary of the shootout, which was January 16th. So it was actually a two-part investigation. So what we did is the night of January 15th, we went in and we set up a lot of what I call stationary equipment. So we set up um, night vision video cameras. We set up voice recorders. We set up what I call trigger items. So for example, we left an open bottle of whiskey and some cigarettes on the dining room table. Um, you know, I had newspaper clippings uh, of photocopies from 1935. I left those strewn about the table. We left some bullets upstairs in the room, you know, uh, shotgun shells and stuff uh, that I would consider that they would have probably have used at the time of the shootout. So we wanted to leave those things as, as again, what we call trigger items to see if we could get a response. So then after we set up all of that equipment, we left the house entirely. We locked it up and we left it because I wanted all of that equipment to sit and run by itself during the night. And it encompassed the time of the shootout. So it started on the night of January 15th and it rolled into about 11 a.m., on January 16th, when we went back and collected all of that equipment. Now, just to, just to go back a little bit, there is no power in the house. So all of the equipment that we had was on our battery power. We had battery packs and you know little handheld generators that we plugged all of this stuff into. And that's really germane to this conversation because when we had things that were going off that are, are geared to measure electromagnetic energy or um, energy pulses, and there's no electricity in the house, I can't explain how that is happening. And so after we collected all of the equipment on the afternoon of January 16th, we went back and analyzed it. And some of the things, like I said, was, was extremely compelling and unexplainable to us. So for example, we captured a man's voice inside the house saying, get out. We captured what sounds like to us is a chair or a uh, being drug or a drawer being opened from a bureau.
And then one of the most interesting pieces of evidence was captured on a stationary camera in what I call the kill room, which is where they found Ma and Fred's body. And around six o'clock in the morning, we captured two voices. The first one said, Freddie. The next one said, yeah, Ma. And the first one said, get ready. And again, extremely compelling because there was nobody in that house. There was nobody around the house. Um, I can verify that because we had cameras that we actually left out on the porch that were shooting out into the, the darkness and nobody approaches the house at the time of those, those recordings. So to us, again, it was extremely compelling evidence. Yes. And I just want to, I just want to say that you do have a video on your website that I have watched, which is very good, gives the very uh, good history of the Ma Barker house. The one thing I thought was really like, whoa, look at that when I was watching was at one point, I, I guess you're in the living room or near the front door and you see this trail of something coming towards the lens, like mm -hmm. right as you're talking to it, you had pre-recorded certain sayings, right? So what I had done um, before we left all of the equipment in the house, uh, I had pre-recorded about 30 minutes of questions. So I, I when, right before we left and locked the door up, I hit play on that recorder and those questions ran for about 30 minutes. And again, it was an attempt to elicit a response from anybody in the house. So I said things like, you know, Ma, are you here? You know, did you uh, kill Sheriff Kelly in 1931? What was the bank robbery where you netted the most money? Things like that, that they would know. And uh, you're absolutely right. There were two instances of light anomalies that I cannot explain. One was in the upstairs and it said, uh, it was when I, on the voice recorder, I had said, Alvin Karpus said that you were not the brains of the operation. And as soon as that, as soon as that question came over the, the speaker, there's a light anomaly that comes out of the room where Ma um, would actually have stayed when she was renting the house. So that is something that I can't explain. And then there was another time, as you said, um, in the living room, it seems to come from the ceiling and run down the wall and go toward the front door. So that was the the first part of the investigation. So what we did then is my, my twin sister and I, we went back about two weeks later and we wanted to spend some time in the house. So we ended up spending about five hours in the house. And again, we set up all of those stationary pieces of equipment, but we also had handheld pieces of equipment. So what some things as, as such as a K2 meter and what that is, is it measures electricity. For example, if, if I have this K2 meter and I'm standing out in the middle of a field somewhere, it should not go off because there's no electrical source. If I were to hold it up to a microwave or a refrigerator or a hairdryer, it's going to go off. So it has, it has light, it has a light bar that goes from green to red. So when it senses energy, it'll move on that light bar. And during the night, again, there's no power in the house. We were getting those K2, what we call K2 hits. They would spike up to red. We also have another, another instrument called a REM pod. And that essentially does the same thing as a K2 meter, only it has an audible alarm. And so when we put it up in, again, what I call the kill room where they found Ma and Fred's body, I should be able just to set this piece of equipment in the room and theoretically nothing should happen to it. It should not alarm. It should not go off at any manner because there's no electricity in the house acting upon it. And so we set, my sister and I sat in that room and we were saying things like, Freddie, are you here? And it would go off. And then we'd say, okay, step back now. And it would stop. And we said, is Ma with you? And the REM pod alarmed. And we said, okay, step back and it would go off. Were you murdered in this room, Freddie? 
if you were murdered by the FBI, will you make that alarm go off again? Sound the alarm. Thank you. Step back. Can you please step back? Thank you. And then we also have another piece of equipment. It's called a spirit box. And essentially it's just a small AM FM radio that's been modified to what we call sweep through frequencies. So when I turn it on and I hit the sweep button, it'll sweep through either AM or FM frequencies at a, at a very fast rate. So when I'm holding it and I'm just sitting somewhere, it'll sound like as it's going through yeah. these frequencies. The idea is that spirits can use that white noise to communicate with us. So again, theoretically, as it's sweeping, I should not hear a phrase or uh, words that could run together because it's going so fast. I mean, the, the odds of getting a full phrase are extremely low because you're jumping from one radio station to the next. And also it has a very small range. And as I said before, the house is sitting on 40 acres in the middle of nowhere. So we were not picking up any, what I would consider terrestrial radio stations at that point. Um, and so when, again, when we took it up to the kill room and I said, what happened in this room? And the spirit, through the spirit box, we get the phrase, they murdered us, we the ones dead. And again, that, that is very compelling to me because I, I shouldn't hear those phrases. What happened in this room? <laughs> I thought you said we the ones killed. And then when I said, can you say the name Blackburn, which again, that's the alias that they rented the house under. I said, can you say the name Blackburn? The name Blackburn came through the spirit box. Can you say Blackburn? What do you think the takeaway is from this experience? Personally, for me, I think that Ma and Fred remained with the house. Their spirits did. The question that I get asked a lot is, you know, why they didn't stay with the land. And that that's correct in my mind because they had no ties to the land. Uh, remember, they were nomadic in life. They had no home base. So they were used to traveling around and just staying in a hideout for a week or a day or two at, two at a time. So in my mind, they stayed with this house because that's the house that they died in. Um, all indications were that they, they really enjoyed the house. You know, they were out in Oklahoma, they were out in Ocala, you know, spending money, being seen, not really trying to hide their faces or anything like that. So they enjoyed the area, they enjoyed their time in the house. And in my mind, if, if you're a spirit and, and you've been, if you're a person and you've been killed in that house, then that's where your spirit is probably going to remain if you had no other tie in life. You know, every investigation that we've gone on, our drive is to actually legitimately speak to any spirit that wants to tell their story. And I think through the spirit box, Ma and Fred wanted it known that they were murdered by the FBI. That is their yeah. story. Well, thank you, Christy. Thank you for joining us on the SoFlo Weird Show. Absolutely, Mia. Thank you for having me. That was Christy Sumner of Soul Sisters talking about the Ma Barker gang and their notorious gun battle with the FBI. Christy also leads historical day tours at the Ma Barker House. For more information, go to mobbarkerhouse.org. If you'd like to check out Soul Sisters, go to soulsistersparanormal.com. There'll also be a link on our website. 
Our next story predates Ma Barker and her boys. It's about another group of brazen bandits with family ties. They were known as the Ashley Gang. Their reign of criminal activity, which festered in the swamps of Florida, was in the 1910s and 20s. Our own master of the weird, Charlie Carlson, describes them in his book, Weird Florida. The notorious Ashley Gang was southeastern Florida's equivalent of Jesse James, Bonnie and Clyde, and Al Capone all rolled into one criminal package. Between 1911 and 1924, these brazen but often bumbling bandits left a trail of crime from the Everglades to Jacksonville. Their reputation was so bad that just about every major crime in South Florida was pinned on them, whether they did it or not. In the shadows, aiding and abetting the gang's career of crime, was a young woman named Laura Updegrove. Known as the Queen of the Everglades, she was a big girl with a tawny complexion. She was said to always be armed with a 38 and would shoot a man at the drop of a hat. John, Ashley, and his brother, Bill, Bob, Ed, and Frank, were raised in a typical cracker family in the tropical woods along the Caloosahatchee River near Fort Myers. Their father, Joe Ashley, was a skilled woodsman who would make his living by fishing, hunting, and trapping otters. In 1911, the family moved to West Palm Beach. Oddly enough, Joe Ashley, a law-abiding man, served briefly as deputy sheriff in Palm Beach County. But young John Ashley, who had become an expert trapper and alligator hunter, spent most of his time in the Everglades. It was during this period that young John turned outlaw and earned the title Swamp Bandit. On December 29, 1911, a dredging crew near Lake Okeechobee found the body of a Seminole trapper named DeSoto Tiger. An investigation revealed that John Ashley and DeSoto Tiger had been seen together on their way to the market with a boatload full of otter hides. Authorities learned from fur dealers that Ashley had sold the hides in Miami for $1,200. John Ashley had launched his criminal career by murdering his seminal partner for otter hides. Two deputies caught up with him as he was camped in a palmetto thicket near Hobie Sound. They moved in to make the arrest, but instead found themselves looking into the barrels of pistols held by John and his brother Bob. The Ashley brothers disarmed the deputies and told them to warn the sheriff not to send any more chicken-hearted men with rifles, as they were apt to get hurt. The Ashleys were said to fear no lawmen. Yet, as ruthless as they were, the gang always stuck to one gallant rule. They never robbed women. John Ashley fled to New Orleans. But in 1914, he was back in Florida, hiding out in the Everglades, where he was joined by one or two of his brothers and any other desperado who wanted to get in on the action. In 1915, John, with the help of his brother Bob and a Chicago mobster named Kid Lowe, attempted to rob a Florida East Coast passenger train. The robbery was less than successful, though, because the gang hadn't worked out who was to shake down the passengers and who was to rob the mail car. They had more hard luck later that year when they pulled off a daring raid on a bank in Stewart for $45,000 in silver and currency. During this heist, Kid Lowe accidentally shot John Ashley in the jaw and destroyed his right eye. When John tried to get medical attention for his eye, he was captured and locked up in the Dade County Jail to await trial. On June 2, 1915, Bob tried to bust his brother out of jail. Not one to beat around the bush, Bob went to the jailer's house, shot him at point-blank range, and took the jail keys. 
He then ran from the house to a garage where his cronies had stashed a getaway car. Unfortunately, Bob couldn't drive the kind of car that had been left for him, so he tried to force several men at gunpoint to do it. The men all claimed not to know how to drive the car either. Bob was in a real fix, so he jumped on the running board of a passing truck and forced the driver to take him out of town. By this time, a deputy was in pursuit of the truck, which stalled in the middle of the street. A shootout erupted, which ended in the death of both Bob and the deputy. Then, Kid Lowe, perhaps trying to atone for shooting his buddy, sent a note to the sheriff's office threatening to shoot up the whole town if John Ashley wasn't released. It was an empty threat. John was found guilty of murder and robbery and on November 23, 1916, was sent to the state penitentiary at Rayford. But no jail could hold John Ashley for long. He escaped, did a little moonshining, was caught and sent back to jail, then escaped again, this time for good. While John was incarcerated, the gang members had occupied themselves mostly with moonshining, sometimes livening up things by hijacking rum runners, but with the return of their leader, they went back to the big time, robbing banks. In November 1924, they robbed a bank in Pompano. After cleaning out the vault and cash drawers, they wrapped the loot in a bedsheet, then drove through the middle of town in a stolen taxi, waving a bottle of whiskey, shouting, We got it all! They crossed a canal and disappeared into the swamp near Clewiston, pursued by a posse led by Sheriff Fred Baker. The gang was found camped out near a moonshine still. A gun battle ensued, and when the smoke had cleared, Sheriff Baker was dead. John Ashley escaped into the wilderness. A short time later, Laura up the grove and some other gang members were arrested, but John remained at large. The slain Sheriff Baker was replaced by his son, Robert Baker, who vowed to put an end to the Ashley gang once and for all. A tip from an undisclosed informant, believed to have been the girlfriend of one of the outlaws, told Sheriff Robert Baker that the gang would be driving at night up the coast, heading for a bank they planned to rob in Jacksonville. The sheriff determined that the bridge over Sebastian Inlet, about 28 miles north of Fort Pierce, would be a perfect spot for an ambush. But the location was out of Baker's jurisdiction, so he asked the sheriff of Indian River County to handle the operation. Baker sent three of his deputies to assist in carrying out the plan. The lawman blocked the road at Sebastian Inlet by stretching a chain with a red lantern across the narrow wooden bridge. After about an hour of slapping mosquitoes, the deputy saw an oncoming vehicle that fit the description of the gang's big black touring car. Taking up their positions, they waited for the car to stop and then approached it from behind. It was the Ashley gang, all right. The deputies ordered the gangsters out of the car, then searched them and the car, finding several guns. The deputies thought they had found all the weapons, but while the gangsters were being lined up outside the car, John Ashley pulled out a concealed gun. The deputies immediately opened fire, and when it was over, John and three other gang members were lying dead in the middle of the bridge. The deceased gangsters were buried just outside Gomez, in the family cemetery in the woods where the old Ashley shack once stood. There were six members of the Ashley gang here, all but one dead from bullet wounds. Today, the Little Ashley Cemetery is no longer in the woods. It sits in the middle of an exclusive residential development of multi-million dollar homes called Mariner Sands. How ironic that the infamous members of the Ashley Gang are now resting in the midst of millionaires, including several bankers. 
There's a rumor that buried somewhere on this property is some loot that was never recovered by the gang. Laura Upthegrove, the notorious queen of the Everglades, lived under an alias for a while in western Florida. After several arrests, she ended up running a gas station at Canal Point on Lake Okeechobee and lived with her mother in Upthegrove Beach. Following an argument with a man who accused her of shortchanging him in a purchase of moonshine, Laura grabbed a bottle of disinfectant and drank it. Some said that it was an accident, that she thought it was a bottle of gin, but others claimed she committed suicide. Whatever the case, she died within minutes. She was only 30. A state historical marker that chronicled the violent end of the Ashley Gang once stood at Sebastian Inlet, but it disappeared when a new bridge was built over the waterway. No one knows what became of it. Perhaps it was stolen by some criminal. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com. If you want more strange Florida stories, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlo Weird Show. Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson, Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance, and our newest weird contributor, Kyle Thayer. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody.